Welcome to Mint. My name is Adam Levy, and I'm going to be showing you how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. This episode welcomes the two co-founders of Catalog.Works, Mike McCain and Jeremy Stern. We had a fun time recording this one in person during ETH Denver, where we got to explore how they're enabling a new era of valuing music for what it's actually worth. They're legends in the space, and the music NFT movement wouldn't have been possible without them. So without further ado, let's dive right in. I hope you enjoy. Jeremy, Mike, welcome to Mint. <laughs> How are we feeling? How are we doing? Feeling good. Fantastic. Thank yeah. you for having us. Thank you for being on. We're at ETH Denver, end of ETH Denver right now. Give me a quick recap. What has ETH Denver been like? You guys threw a killer event. It's been good. It's been good. Yeah, we got the whole team out here. Um, that line to get in was a bit ridiculous. <laughs> it took three hours to get a ticket that I haven't used yet, but <laughs> um, it's been solid. Just good to connect with the whole team out here. Yeah, cool. definitely different than previous years. Like a lot, lot, lot more people. Um, not quite as easy to catch all the things you want to catch. A lot more side events, which has been fun. A lot more FOMO, but really great seeing everyone. Always good to have an opportunity to kick with people, catch up with people, party with people. Yeah. Um, no better experience than partying with people that you chat with and make friends with online. All right, let's 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 dive right in, okay? Who are you guys? Give me a quick intro on yourselves, but more specifically, how did you get into crypto? We can start with Jeremy and then go to Mike. Yeah, so in early 2017, um, you know, one of my computer science part, like homework partners was like asking if I want to buy some stuff off the dark net and looking into it. First step was buying Bitcoin, but... Uh, yeah, I ended up buying some Bitcoin, started looking to other cryptocurrencies. We were roommates in college at the time. Mm. So just looking at different, uh, at different options, learning about like Sia coin, storage coin. Uh, at one point Mike was like, what's this Ethereum thing? It's only $8 or 80, $80. April, 2017. Wow. Yeah. Um, I was studying, I taking classes on distributed networks, always been a big BitTorrent fan and fan of just like peer to peer technology generally. Um, come from a computer science background. So yeah, uh, that was kind of our introduction to it. Uh, went through that cycle, stuck around, um, you know, learning about different projects, dabbling with development. Um, but I come from, you know, both of us are big SoundCloud heads. Uh, mm. Definitely spent a lot of time in kind of golden era SoundCloud, uh, finding a lot of new artists and, and diving into a lot of those different communities. Um, I make music in Ableton, been DJing since like high school, uh, play a little bit of bass guitar, but what's your style of music? It's all over. I'll, okay. I'll send you some after. Okay. <laughs> um, but li- recently listening to a lot of house, uh, more laid back stuff, some R and B drum and bass cool. all over. Nice. Mike. Yeah. I think for me, uh, I bought Bitcoin in 2013 early on, just like $500, let it sit for a bit at a minute. And then like Jeremy was saying, I think I bought Ethereum on Coinbase April, 2017, just as like, you know, I had bought a little bit of Bitcoin and I saw it on Coinbase. I had no idea what it was, but I just, you know, threw a couple hundred bucks in. Um, went on a trip where I was offline for about two weeks and came back online. And that Ethereum went from 80 to $240. And so it was like a, a good chunk of money in a couple of weeks. And so I think a lot of people get into the space through speculation originally. And that's how I kind of entered and through 2017 just fell down the rabbit hole completely um was completely enthralled and absorbed in ethereum specifically and this was 
my last year of school um, in Boston and was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. My major was in entrepreneurship and music after bouncing around a lot. Um, and by the time I graduated, I pretty much committed, like I'm not going to not take a job in crypto. Sure. I'm going to work in crypto, whatever that is. So I got out of school. I moved out to Denver. And for a while, for a couple months, I would just scroll coin market cap, click on every interesting project I could find and go to the jobs board and reach out to somebody. Oh, no way. Um, my background, like my education isn't in product design, but we've been working on side projects for a minute and I've kind of just always done, you know, design work, whether it be for my music production, cover art or, you know, just side projects trying to kind of flesh out, build my skills. Um, and it was like probably a hundred applications in that I applied to Coinbase for an internship. I got rejected and I was kind of like at the end of the road. Like I think I was applying to places for four months. I still didn't have that much experience. Um, and one of the last applications that I put in was uh, an organization called MakerDAO. Um, one thing led to another. I eventually got an internship. Shout out Henry who hired me, um, <laughs> really put me on and like, I just, yeah, I ended up working as a product designer at MakerDAO for three and a half years. And it was a really, um, just incredible experience, the ups and downs of that organization and really just learning a lot about DeFi. Um, always knowing like, again, like, yeah, produce music and DJ a little bit. Um, and music had always been kind of the passion in the background. Um, and I knew I wanted to build something and also knew I wanted to build it in crypto. So it was all these kind of things happening at once. I was working as a product designer full-time in crypto, was making music. Um, and, you know, working on side projects throughout the years, which we'll get into, but um, all that kind of combination of things happening in parallel led to uh, eventually, you know, where we're at now. So how did you guys kind of butt heads then prior to Catalog? Was Catalog actually the first thing you guys started building together? So we met, we met in school, right. um, sophomore year of college and pretty early on started working on projects. Um, I think we always wanted to build something we had, <laughs> we went through tons of things. We went through like subscription box ideas. We went through, um, we, we had a candle making era where we were like, yeah, making candles and labeling them and just trying to like put stuff out there and make good things and see what happened. Candles. Candles. They were good candles. Were they? <laughs> they were, yeah. yeah. We might have to bring them back at some point, some low-key catalog merch. Yeah, yeah we okay. would brew them on our kitchen stove. It was it was great. It was an era. Candles are expensive to buy, but they're actually really cheap to make and not that hard. Oh. Um, but yeah, we were we were very deep in SoundCloud world, uh, you know, budding producers, but recognized a lot of the problems that SoundCloud had at sort of just a user interface and user experience level and got the feeling that they weren't really listening to their artist or, or, you know, power user communities. And from a lot of those frustrations, you know, aside from just the artists don't make very much money, um, from a lot of those frustrations, we set out to kind of build a better version of SoundCloud. And we're obsessed with this idea of micro-tipping. So, like, what if you could leave a small tip on every single song you listen to or potentially to add a song to your likes? You, you give, you know, a pay-what-you-want type of tip. And a lot of those, we started looking to ACH transactions for that kind of stuff. Turns out it was relatively expensive if you know if you want to send like a 10 cent tip you're paying roughly the same amount uh and just transfer fees um and that actually led us to one looking into cryptocurrency as an option because back then you know trans transaction fees were less than a cent mm -hmm. and also just taking that idea and boiling it down a ton because it was the first 
you know, real major project that either of us had done. We had kicked around other business ideas through school, but none that really felt as important. And yeah, that led to our first sort of project after college called Loft Radio. It was a 24-7 Beats Radio, uh, kind of taken after those lo-fi streams that you see on YouTube, where as an artist songs came on, you could tip it in 25 cent increments and 100% of the tip would go directly to the artists. So it's kind of our first experiment with music in Web3. We onboarded over 50 artists, uh, got them set up with MetaMask wallets, um, paid out at the time, you know, in like late 2020, what was worth, uh, you know, like $1,500 or something like that in tips. So nothing substantial, but um, got a lot of interest from people on the crypto side. Uh, we got a Meta Cartel grant, shout out uh, Peter Pan. Really cool experience talking to a lot of those folks. But um, when it came time to stay, scale it up, we had this vision for creating, you know, multiple stations, not just one. Uh -huh. So stations for labels, for artists, for listeners, this kind of network that was tied in um and this infrastructure that we were built on wouldn't support that very well. So we took a step back, recognizing that while, you know, peer-to-peer -peer payments are cool, it's certainly not the most interesting thing that you can do with Ethereum. Um, talked to a lot of artists in our circles um, just about their experience with sites like Bandcamp, what worked, what didn't, what they wanted to see, what they didn't have. Um, and a lot of those ideas led to an early version of Catalog that we built for uh the Seed Club and, and ETH Online hackathons in October of 2020. Um, and that was a very different version of Catalog. It was based around artist tokens, um, kind of like staking uh, those tokens on the artist to receive a share of their income. Uh, pivoted away from that for a number of reasons, but uh, then November of that year, um, you know, reworked the idea a bit, and then December onwards, uh, I've just been building what is now Catalog today. Launched on March 9th, 2021. The rest is history. So what is Catalog? For those who don't know, yes, quick one-liner. Sure. Catalog is a um, digital record shop and music community for artists to press one-of-one -one digital records and for uh, fans to discover, listen to, and collect their favorite music. Why do people want to collect their favorite music? So a large part of our own identities and forms of self-expression comes in things like the clothes we have in our closet, the books you carry on your bookshelf, the vinyl records that you have in your collection, um, or for some, just you know, the songs in your in your Spotify library. Yeah. But these are all like integral parts of our identity. It's the kind of thing where you could walk into someone's home and take a look around and without ever having met them, get a kind of an idea of who they are. Um, and a large part of our digital identities is now moving in the direction of what you carry in your wallet. Um, so collecting music has always been a part of self-expression. Mm -hmm. um, this is just the latest iteration of that. So when you guys, basically, you guys have a selection of artists publishing one of ones, their fans and most beloved listeners collecting those. What does the curation process actually look like to get on catalog? And what kind of artists are you guys actually looking for? That's a good question. I think early on, like curation is, is really, really important in this space specifically right now because music NFTs as a market is still relatively young. Sure. Um, our role looks more like a marketplace today. And what that takes is balancing supply and demand. Um, while the collector interest for music NFTs is still growing, um, we don't want to, you know, overdo the supply of artists that are coming onto the platform. I think the, you know, the curatorial vision from the beginning was really at the end of the day just comes down to the music. 
um, how good is this music? And we work specifically with independent artists who aren't tied up in complex contracts that we can't necessarily um, work within, uh, within the bounds and tools that we have available. Um, so it's, it's, it's really like the music. We don't look at streaming numbers. We don't look at social media following. Um, we want to put on new artists and undiscovered artists, um, as well as, you know, maybe more well-established independent artists. Um, and I think we value diversity of genre, diversity of geography, diversity of identity. Uh, all this is really important, especially, you know, we're building what we hope to one day be a shared ownership um, catalog into a shared uh, platform. Uh, sorry, shared co-ownership. Yeah. Co-owned platform, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, co-owned by the community. And I think it's really important that we build up a diverse base of artists so that um, we're not uh, accumulating all that ownership into a non-diverse group of people. You know, I, I'm thinking about it because back in the day when vinyls came out, it feels very reminiscent to collecting a physical vinyl, right? Um, beyond being able to play it, you can show it, you can show it off. Like I own this, I, I've collected this, right? And I'm just looking up a stat right now, and it's like I searched up our vinyl sales growing in the U.S. and it says vinyl sales in the U.S. increased from 21.5 million units in 2020 to 41.7 million units last year, according to a 2021 report from MRC Data Billboard media consumption company, whatever. And I've never collected a vinyl, right? So it makes you think like it's a new medium for a new generation to appreciate music and the collection process behind kind of owning a song that you feel so, so connected to. Despite actually needing to collect a vinyl to listen to the song, right? It seems like people still enjoy collecting these, these physical assets that kind of represent a song, right? Do you ever imagine with time, music NFTs kind of dying down in terms of collection, uh, just like vinyls did. And I guess like that question is also like pegged to, okay, technology happened, new forms of streaming kind of got introduced. But I guess like, how do you imagine the future of like collection kind of looking like? Yeah, I think it largely depends on like the culture and experiences we create around music NFTs and, you know, whether the ecosystem can create value and create this new economy around collecting. Um, I think there is a long way to go on, on one level, just on like the social value of collecting a music NFT. And I think that's really important if there's not spaces to, um, express yourself online through the music that you collect, then we're, we're missing out on a pillar of value that should exist for music mm -hmm. NFTs. Um, so I think it's really dependent on in a lot of ways, how the ecosystem develops. Um, but I do think, like, I, I'm more bullish, I guess, personally on Web3 music versus music NFTs particularly. I think there's so many opportunities for, you know, especially when kind of NFTs and DeFi have some sort of convergence down the road for artists to monetize their work in thousands of new ways. One of one records is, again, like a small sliver of a value model mm -hmm. in the whole pie of, of new value models, whether that's through NFTs or streaming money. Um, or any of the other kind of like infrastructure that develops on Ethereum moving forward. Yeah, I think it's worth noting that, you know, collecting music in just its rawest form, while is one really important mission that we're on and, and a battle to be fought, that there, because of Web3 technology, it enables so many different, like new, uh, previously impossible types of models. And I think you can look to a lot of interesting 
uh, use cases around like jam bands and other artists who have like cult followings that have found really creative ways to, you know, kind of have a shared experience and, and supportive fan base that they can connect closely with both digitally and in physical space mm-hmm. um, that are also just like very valid use cases. But yeah. Music NFTs, like kind of a fuzzy word people throw, yeah. people throw it around and it can mean a whole slew of different things. It could mean music videos. It could mean, you know, more like other collectibles that surround music. Um, but the mission we're on is very focused around bringing value back to music itself. Yeah. I love it. What's up guys. Adam Levy here. Sorry for the quick pause. I wanted to give some love to our two NFT sponsors that are making this episode a reality. They are Coinvise and Polygon Studios. On Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum or Polygon. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more today by visiting coinvise.co. Polygon Studios is the gaming and NFT arm of Polygon, who's focused on growing the blockchain gaming and NFT industry while bridging the gap between Web 2 and Web 3 gaming. The Polygon Studios ecosystem comprises highly loved blockchain games like OpenSea, Upshot, Avagachi, Zedrun, Skyweaver, Decentraland, and Decentral Games. If you're a gamer, builder, or NFT creator looking to join the Polygon Studios ecosystem, get started today by visiting polygonstudios.com. All right, back to the episode. I want to talk more about macro uh, macro discussions, okay? So what happens when somebody actually uploads the same song on-chain? Like, how are handles dispute? How are disputes handled, excuse me? Of course, we can look back and see which one was uploaded first, right? It's a given, but... It's on chain now. Like it's forever there. It could accumulate money, right? It could, it could accumulate revenue that then is not associated with the initial person that uploaded the song. So how do you guys kind of think about that at catalog and then the music industry on chain at large? So what you're talking about is largely an identity problem, which yeah. is not specific to music NFTs, but to the space at large. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of the main reasons why we've been curated. Thus, or one of the many reasons we were curated at this time is mm-hmm. that it's a very unsolved problem, even in web two music to yeah. prove that, Hey, I am the original rights holder for this. And that person is wrongfully making money off of my music. Um, sampling is, has a whole gray area with that, but purely just, Hey, I uploaded a Kanye song. Um, there, it, it can be really difficult to, like, there's things you can do to, you know, look at like content fingerprinting and try to prevent that at a UI level. But ultimately if, you know, there's nothing stopping someone from using permissionless tools to upload a Kanye West song and sell it. Um, so with that in mind, it's, I think there's a lot of things that can be done in general to improve identity yeah. on chain. It's a different problem space to tackle. Right. Yeah. But with regards to music specifically, uh, you know, we take sort of your run of the standard, like run of the mill steps with regards to like terms of service and identity verification on our end internally. Um, but I think that's going to need to be improved as we as we hit scale. Yeah. Anything anything to add to that, Jeremy? I mean, Mike, excuse me. That's all good. <laughs> um, no, I think I think that that about hits it. I mean, it's a very difficult problem to solve, and like Jeremy mentioned, it's it's a problem that's pretty much just an extension of yeah. problems that exist today. Um, blockchain does not solve this, <laughs> and uh, yeah, until we have. I guess more rigid decentralized identity systems, it's going to continue to be, um, you know, a manual process, at least for us. I think there is an opportunity to decentralize this process and kind of 
um, give the opportunity or the responsibility of arbitration to the community um, to handle these things in a a decentralized way rather than a core team. Um, But again, that's an entirely complex and uh, system and complex problem to solve. Yeah. For those less familiar with music NFTs and our artists kind of entering Web3 right now, they're overwhelmed with all the buzzwords and all the processes from MetaMask to uploading to minting, et cetera. A lot of them just understand streaming platforms, right? And when they come to catalog and they try to understand, okay, what is catalog and how do I kind of think about it from a bigger picture? I guess my, my question is like, do you guys see yourselves kind of like competing with streaming platforms to an extent? Like, let's say Spotify were to embed uh, and create a feature where you can support the artist through micro tipping, for example, or collecting their, their song file itself, right? Do you see yourselves competing in that, in that matter? Or how do you guys kind of think about that from a big picture point of view? I think on a long enough time scale, we probably see ourselves competing with, um, you know, major DSPs. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's, you know, a scenario that we would hope for tomorrow. Yeah. Um, I think that's actually a potentially nightmare scenario of streaming went away tomorrow. But I do think we need more robust systems. We need better developed infrastructure. We need education. I mean, we just need more people participating in the space before we're kind of ready for that kind of scale. Yeah. It's an interesting balance to strike because most of the time when you're abstracting, at least at this stage in the game, when you're abstracting too much away from the user, it oftentimes means that you're taking some amount of sacrifices in terms of centralization or you know custodial wallets. Uh, if you're abstracting away gas fees, then you're on a layer two, which some may be more trustworthy or will have more longevity than others. Um, so yeah, we're in a tricky, we're, the stage is still in its infancy or the industry is still very much in its infancy and uh it's always important, I think, to step back and remember that hey, it's still kind of the first inning. We're in the sort of dial-up era phase of things. Um, Which is know. crazy to think about. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah. It's very much like a blank canvas that yeah. we all get a chance to sort of collectively paint. Yeah. And um, yeah, just and endlessly grateful to be building in, in the space for that reason. Yeah. On that topic of infrastructure, do you think the music industry needs its own protocol? Mm. Interesting question. I mean... There are some amount of like protocols that exist today in terms of how money is facilitate, like how money is moved around from the pockets of you know everyday people mm-hmm. who are using Spotify to you know when a song is played on the radio or licensed via sync. Um, it's all you know has somewhat has some amount of standards moved around, but admittedly they're pretty garbage. Um, it's not very clear, or rather like there's there's a lot of black boxes where money gets lost and. People are always having to chase things down. Putting a lot of that, those movements on chain is undeniably, I think, a, a net positive for musicians. Getting paid instantly um, and transparently would be a huge, huge, huge step forward. And there's a lot of cool companies working on stuff like that today. Um, but to sort of broad strokes generalize, it's, I think, difficult to say that there's any one, you know, sort of proven way to monetize music. Uh, we have, you know, we're doing things one way in, in a catalog, and I think there's, you know, no shortage of possibilities there. So in terms of a protocol for music in Web three, it feels like there's going to be many rather than just sort of one overarching standard. Yeah. What do you think, Jeremy? Uh, Mike, I'll leave me. it there. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Leave it there. So, do you think the end goal of all this is to kind of build a trustless music industry? Because there's a lot of human error throughout the day-to-day from assigning rights to contracts to 
the DSPs and adding associating royalties to people. The list goes on and on of just like different human error and touch points that kind of get many people screwed over. Would you agree the, the end goal is to create a trustless music industry? And when you, when you even hear trustless music in- industry, like what does that really mean? It's like two that? questions kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah, trustless feels obviously very important. It's like a ethos. It's a big part of the ethos of Web3 generally. Um, like philosophically, it's something that we should all strive for in the tech that we're building. Um, I think a big part of that is owning the tools that you use in your day-to-day so that you know we don't have to trust that SoundCloud has our best interest at hand, but that you know we can actually if they do something that we don't like as users, that we can have a say in that um, and are incentivized to act in everyone's best interest. Um, I would say that like the term gets thrown around a lot, even in the context of like permissionless and in permissionless systems, you know, like I was saying earlier, I can go and upload a Kanye West song and sell that. And if there aren't low right checks and balances in place, I'm going to make money off of that. And probably someone high up is going to, like the music industry has a long history of suing uh, or buying out um, disruptive technologies, and I think this is absolutely no different. Um, so, to do things trustlessly can enable your doing things too trustlessly, I guess, or too permissionlessly can open up a lot more um, risk for platforms like us. And I think taking uh, an approach that's more akin to like so like the Pirate Bay or, or like Audius or something like that, something that is truly, you know, unable to be stopped, that is immutable, um, is a step in that right direction. But I don't know, it, it's a nuanced topic. Like yeah. the, the more uh, the more permissionless tools that you have, the more powerful things you can do. And some people might use that as a tool and some people might use that as a weapon. Mm. Um, so there's also a huge responsibility when building this space to you know, make sure that people are, you know, doing things, moving ethically, like yeah. putting the right stop gaps in place to try and prevent the wrong people from, you know, making money off the backs of others. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we could have a whole episode on that yeah. alone. Yeah. Mike. Yeah. I think, I think you're always going to have the, you have in, you human input in these systems as opposed to you know, a DeFi protocol, the code is deployed and you just interact with it. You don't have people uploading content to a system um, all over the world, all different kinds of people. And I think inevitably in a system like that, you're going to have bad actors and dealing with bad actors, you know, as far as the infrastructure provides right now, uh, depends on trust in a lot of ways. Um, so until we have, you know, better developed infrastructure or, or more, uh, tooling around dealing with these sorts of human problems. I think we're, there's going to be a degree of trust in these systems for yeah. foreseeable future. An interesting example that's more concrete is splits. So I was just about to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot of record deals are, you know, on like a five year contract. Yeah. And if that expires and it's not renewed, then the record label is not entitled to a split from that anymore. So in the context of, you know, music NFTs, if the label's wallet address is permanently hard coded, into that split, then the deal expires, then they shouldn't be getting that right. share anymore. So right. now you need someone to oversee the split to make sure that it is being actively maintained. And these things change all the time. Um, so 
who should have the authority to update the split? Is it just Let the artist? input the split to begin with. Right. Yeah. Now, what if you have a bad actor who suddenly goes exactly. rogue and says, hey, actually, I, I'm not going to vote myself out of this split, even though they technically should be. Um, who should have the authority there? How do we make sure that there's honest cases where things can happen too? Like, oh, I lost access to my wallet. Like this happens a lot in these early days when people are still learning. Um, well, how can we be sure that they actually did lose access? How can we be sure that a bad actor who, who gained access um, isn't able to do anything malicious? Again, not these are not problems that are specific to music, but nor Web three because Web two as well. You go on DistroKid and you could easily delete someone from his rights and his royalties, right? Um, so Web3 doesn't necessarily solve that. Like, sure, if there was like a, a, a contract where you can set a time limit, right? And you can put all these details to the actual written contract on chain, then sure, but we're not there yet. Right. Dan Fowler has some great writing on that on this topic in particular. But yeah, a lot of these problems are human problems and coordination problems um, that are not easy to solve. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I want to talk to you guys about, what's the the canonical format of a song? Like, is this model of collecting a song and having everyone stream it for free the future? How do you guys kind of think about that? It's something that we talked about yesterday during the Good, Good Karma uh, showcase, the panel that we had uh, at, ETH, at ETH Denver. So I'm just curious, like, what, what does streaming look like through co collecting and owning, right? How does that play a part in it? I know right now it's just treated as a way to kind of value music as an art, the way you would buy a Picasso, the way you would buy any any form of art. And it should stand at that, but it's composable. The, the, these, this technology is composable by nature, right? You can build on top of it. Sooner or later, all these top collectors, there might be a decentralized Spotify where you can license the music that you own and you can earn streaming royalties on it in the native governance token, right? Like these are things that may eventually play out. But what does that look like from your point of view? And I know this is like a very much like a macro, like, oh, in the future, but I think it's important to know. Yeah, at a high level, I think that canonical, the idea of canonical is to serve as a source of truth. Um, and what that source of truth contains is pretty primitive right now, but it can grow into including permissions around licenses um, or, you know, containing attribution and royalties. Um, so just to have that one of one source of truth of which not to say one of ones is the sole value model, uh, but one of ones serving as that canonical version that you can look to for any other value models or composition that you might do on top of that. So you build, for example, we saw with uh, BPM bot, which was a discord bot built on top of catalog records, originally hosted club BPM and discord invited a bunch of people, sold tickets um, through their BPM token. And there was a question around, you know, these ticket sales to get into quote unquote club BPM. Where does that money go? Does it go to the Dow? Does it go to the people who own the records? Does mm. it go to the artists? Mm. If it goes to the artists, are they getting 100%? Are they getting 50%? Um, artists set a creator share on their one-on-one -on -one record on catalog. Do they collect that creator share on the, the ticket sales? So there's all these questions I don't think they're, that are well-defined on the one-on-one -on -one canonical version yet. Um, but just to have that there and, and, and build out that tooling and permission systems on the original, I think can again, serve as a source of truth for any other value model um, or application that, that might choose to build on top of it. Yeah. It's worth calling out too that, you know, one of the things we recognize as problematic in the industry today is this pay-per-play valuation model of music. It incentivizes music that is going to get the most number of plays when that's not necessarily how most people create art. And 
it creates sort of perverse incentives in that regard. Um, what's interesting also about sort of streaming and, and the digital music era that we're in today is that uh, it allows content to be freely distributed as wide as the internet itself. And it's not a bad thing. That means more people can hear this for free. Right now, I can effectively hear any music I want for free and download that for free with or without you know, a, a, a subscription to a DSP. Mm-hmm. Um, the beautiful thing about NFTs is that everyone loves to talk about, you know, compare it to like the Mona Lisa, the, the more culturally relevant that piece of art becomes, the more it is experienced and shared, the more valuable the original. And so with that logic, the more valuable the one of one or the catalog record. Um, I think for a lot of artists, it is the case that someone would value that original more than that artist would ever get from streams from from that single song but that might not al- might not always be the case um maybe some songs you know while correlated in value for the one of one to their streaming ro- to their streaming numbers might not have that same uh that same balance um but ultimately it, it's there's no shortage of possibilities for ways artists to monetize it in web three native ways. And those are the things that I think we're most interested at catalog. Um, and so having one of ones that as sort of the source of that, um, like Mike was talking about makes for an interesting, uh, proposition. Yeah. And shout out Holly Herndon and Matt Dryhurst on the, the per play valuation model idea. I think they really helped kind of like seed that idea into the culture and, and popularize the idea that, this value model is singular and it may work for some artists, but it is not the way that we should be universally valuing music. Um, go follow the con- them. But on great. the consumer side, it's just the easiest way to enjoy it. Like from a listener's point of view, right? Well, you can point to that number and say, look, look how many you know views that YouTube video has, right. how many plays this song has. You could say, look how many sales that vinyl sold, for, you know, that they sold of that record. How many digital downloads did it get? Um, now we can start to look at other interesting, you know, lenses of this, slices of views of this, which is like, well, how much did the NFT sell for? Obviously, there's a lot of other factors that got it play into that, but um, yeah. yeah, these are all sort of viewing the perceived value of a song in a very narrow lens. And I think that's something that can be very difficult to actually uh, quantify. You know, how, how do you quantify how much a song means to you? If you think back to like the albums that you listened to when you were 13, like how much do some of those or when you, you know, broke up with your first partner or something like that, like trying to actually under understand how much that means to an individual or, or to a collective of individuals, it's actually very hard to measure. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good place to, to nearly wrap up really quick before I let you guys go. There's obviously a lot of people that want to be on catalog that know of you guys and the cool things that you guys are building what are some tips you have for musicians, for creators coming into Web3, coming across all these buzzwords and wanting to dive right in? How would you help them navigate it? I think it's a lot of just like hanging around the space and learning um, and diving into these communities. I think there's there's so many Web3 music communities at this stage and they're all incredibly welcoming and there's a lot to learn in all of them. Um, you know, whether that's hanging out in Discord communities, listening in on Twitter spaces, following the right people on Twitter. Um, This space moves super, super rapidly. (laughs) And I think just to envelop yourself in it is the best way to get your footing. Um, And if you want to, you know, you feel comfortable to start releasing music. um, There are platforms today that are open for for anybody to use. Um, 
And then there, there are also curated platforms. And I would just encourage everyone to um, explore the bounds of the space. And if you want to release on a sound or a catalog, um, submit your music. Uh, we would love to hear it. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, there's, there's tools like Manifold, there's tools like Mint Songs that are available for everybody. Um, but really, yeah, the only answer is just to, to get involved and dive in. Amazing. Guys, I think that's a great place to end off. Where can we find you? Where can we find Catalog? Show the details. We are at Catalog Works on both Twitter and Instagram. My uh, Twitter is at J-Z-S-T-E-R-M. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, M McCain underscore. <laughs> and also, yeah, if you go to catalog.community, that'll take you to our Discord. Um, some basic questions can be found at Catalog. can be answered at catalog.wtf, but yeah jump in say what's up um and we'd love to hear what you're listening to even you know web3 aside just throw some music recs in the music recs channel always keen to listen to that stuff amazing guys thank you so much hope to have you on again soon thank you thanks adam appreciate it of course